gun. Changes from. Hey buds, you can't ask me a question here, buds. You'll be all right. You ask me only questions. Alrighty, so we're gonna go ahead and get started here. The um, there's a number of reasons why I want to teach on the Holy Spirit. One of the main reasons is that the concept of the Holy Spirit is arguably the most misunderstood aspect about the Christian life and about our God. Because of that, when we look at when we look at the nature of our salvation, even the way in which we walk our Christian lives, the way we pray, the way we hope and what we hope for, the expression of the importance of the Holy Spirit usually gets reduced to what can God do for me? Can God make me feel better? Can God give me certain fruits of the Spirit? And we even focus on words like that as if it's special abilities I have that I can accrue up for myself and become a better Christian rather than the way in which the Spirit of God actually grows up the church mutually beneficial to serve one another that God may be glorified rather than us. And in this concept, most of the interactions and most of the teachings regarding the Holy Spirit is exactly the opposite of what he does, exactly the opposite of what his role is. Do you guys want to close those doors so that we can hear? We're going to be going through all the scriptures this semester. Uh, I collapsed this. The last time I taught this class, it took three years uh, every week. And so I'm not going to do 140, 150 parts like I did with that. We're going to be collapsing this. So at some points, we're going to be going really quick. And at some points, we're going to be getting a lot more of an overview uh, regarding the Holy Spirit and what he does, who he is. And you notice the first thing. I'm not using the term it. I'm not using energy, I'm not using forces or any such thing. The Holy Spirit is as much a person as God the Son and God the Father. The Holy Spirit is not an extension of the Father or, or the way that the Father just does things. The Holy Spirit is God as much as the Father is God and as much as the Son is God. And from this, we should expect to see him all through the scriptures. And yet most people's interaction with the Holy Spirit really only extends to the New Testament. We think he kind of shows up, I guess, he has something to do with the virgin birth with Mary, but then, you know, he's like a dove at Jesus' baptism, but then when we come down to uh, Pentecost, that's where we really start paying attention to the third person of the Holy Trinity. And yet, if that's where we start paying attention to the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you, you're going to completely mess up what he is here to do. He is not here to give us tricks, and miracles so that we can verify the gospel. He is not here to just make your life a certain way. He is not here for you. He is here for himself. The glory of God extended in the salvation of his people and the sanctification of his people, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, is not about us. And this is where our theology really comes to call when we address things like salvation, things like the life of the church. These are not things that we accomplish. We are not in charge of where the church goes. We are not in charge of who becomes saved. We are not in charge of who, in our perspective, stays saved. We are not in charge of any of these things. These things are the work of the Holy Spirit. And so most of the first part of this uh, semester, because we're only going to be going as far as June, and then we'll take a break for the summer, most of this semester is going to be in the Old Testament. And some may wonder, is there enough material in the Old Testament regarding the Spirit of God? Absolutely. It's absolutely overwhelmingly filled with references regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit, what he does, how he does it, and the different ways in which he did it before the coming of Christ. One of the most awesome parts about this is that it is a unified voice throughout all of Scripture. And so if you pick up the conversation in the book of Acts at the day of Pentecost, the story of scripture is 85% over, and you will be thoroughly confused about who the Holy Spirit is and what he's here to do. And so before we even get started, I usually like to do this. I want to have some answers. 
from you guys. What do you see or what have you been taught or what is your Im impression of what the Holy Spirit does, who he is? What is his role? What does he do? You can even list out some things that you know he has done and is doing. Yes, ma'am. Uh, 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 the baptism was Jesus' baptism. And Mary, so a uh, certain blessing out to them, yep. There was certainly that, yep. He inspires scripture. Now that's interesting. Now we have the Holy Spirit working the work of inspiration of scripture. Why would that be? Why not the Father? Why not the Son, who is himself the Word? Why the Holy Spirit? And while we know that the Holy Spirit inspires scripture, why? Why is he the one that did that? We're going to be working through that. Okay, anything else? What do we got? Other roles, other actions? Correct. Correct. And what does that mean? What does he do? Why does he take up residence there rather than heaven? And is it just me? Does he like live on my left earlobe? In my brain somewhere? Is it physical? How does that work? And, and in all these things, usually a cursory introduction to the Holy Spirit will lead to just giving up asking questions. And we just kind of assume it's unanswerable or it's mystical in some way. And we really can't solve it down. We can't really nail it down. The scriptures aren't really clear about what the Holy Spirit does anyway. And what I want to do with this class is to express not only are the scriptures clear about what the Holy Spirit does, the scriptures are overwhelmingly clear about the role of the Holy Spirit and what he does particularly. Good morning. Not a worry. You're here. And so that's why I call this class Beyond the Mist, because the typical way that people interact with the Holy Spirit is in a very mystical sense. Like, we can't really nail down what he does. And there's just like this clouded, mysterious concept about what his role is and what he does. And so we almost, because I think some of us out of fear of being wrong, we really don't pursue any of this. Also, the charismatic and the Pentecostal worlds have done a great deal of harm to the teaching of the Holy Spirit because we assume that he's all about feelings. And then that becomes problematic. It's not just about emotion. We know at least that much, but we don't really know what more he does. We don't know how to discern whether something is of the Holy Spirit or something of evil spirit, which is the antithesis. Just as Jesus was here teaching and was a good teacher, there were false teachers. Just as there is the Holy Spirit here working, acting, indwelling, there's also false spirits in this world. How do we discern between them? How do we know what is the work of the Holy Spirit and what is the work of us? How do we know what is the work of God and what is the work of man? More importantly, how do we know what is glorifying God and what is glorifying us? That is where the study of the Holy Spirit comes in to direct application. Because how do we discern these things becomes some of the most important aspects, not only of our communal lives, but even of our individual lives. For instance, when we come to a familiar passage in the book of Galatians that talks about the fruit of the Spirit, we almost don't even think about the fact that that's describing a direct work in our personal lives regarding the actual work of the Spirit. And we start thinking, well, how can I increase my love, my joy, my peace, my patience, my kindness, my goodness, my faithfulness, my gentleness, and self-control? And then we immediately turn from dependence on God and we say, I need to make these things realities in my life. But if it was the work of us, it wouldn't be called the fruit of the Spirit. It would be called the fruit of self-improvement the fruit of exertion, the fruit of good works, not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is an expression of the work of God in our lives. And if you notice, every one of those is communal language. You can't be gentle on your own. You cannot be kind by yourself. You cannot have love if you are alone. One must love another. One must be in concert with others. There must be a fellowship of believers. There must be others in our lives so that the work of the Spirit continues on. This is why the, even the gifts of the Spirit, which is where most of the misteaching about the Holy Spirit breaks down, the biggest condemnation that Paul had for the church in Corinth 
was that they were holding their spiritual gifts to themselves and not using them in service to one another. And so he says, what is the point of speaking in tongues? What is the point of prophesying if you're only doing it for yourself and to aggrandize yourself? And we can hear those things and we can hear them almost in isolation and be corrected on them, but what is the background of all of this? Why was the Spirit coming and giving gifts to people like this? Why is it people could go out and speak in other languages? Was just this a random miracle? I hope you know from just, just sitting through the Gospel of John, you know that no miracle is random. They're all speaking of the Gospel on some level, somewhere. While the works of the Spirit speak not of us and of our ability, they speak of God, the Holy Spirit himself, what he's here to do. And so with all of that, with all the questions we've worked through, Let's go to the scriptures. It's really common these days in Sunday schools to just use a book or a curriculum. You already own the curriculum. Bring your Bibles to this class. We will be going through almost all of the 66 books while we're here because almost all of them talk about the Holy Spirit in one way or another. This morning, we will start in the book of Genesis. But even before we get to Genesis, let me ask a couple of questions. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 2. Before we even get there, you can turn there. When did the Holy Spirit come into existence? Yes. I like that answer. There was never a time where God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit we're not eternally dwelling with one another as our one God. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we are not talking about some afterthought. We are not talking about a plan C after we tried the law and that didn't really work. And then we tried Jesus, God the Son, and maybe that didn't really work as well. So now we'll try the Spirit. And a lot of people have interacted with this on that level. Problem is, is that's not how the scriptures talk about this. There was a concert of the whole Trinity from creation onwards, as far as Revelation is concerned. But as we even push back before there was an earth, before there was a heaven, where God himself just is, still the Holy Spirit, still God the Son. The same as we see as the opening of the Gospel of John. The Word was God in the beginning, and the Word was with God. All things were made through him. There was nothing that was made that was not made through him. And that word became flesh, and we knew him by the name Jesus of Nazareth. The Holy Spirit, the same. But we don't have to wait for the Gospels to express this to us. We need simply to go back to the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Could almost even be seen as the title of the opening of Genesis. In fact, the book of Genesis is called such because in Hebrew, the first word is the word for beginnings in the beginning. Genesis in the Greek. That's where our name comes from. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's almost this capstone statement for all the things that will then follow. Since God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, now we enter into a description of how is it he has done this, why is it he has done this, in what manner and for what purpose. And so you see the very opening lines there, expressing this the earth was without form and void what without form means there's no purpose there's no intention there's no land in fact we'll find out it's just this water world sitting there it was void no life it was empty and it was dark and it was covered in water the earth was without form and void Darkness was over the face of the deep, and here we go, we're introduced to God. If your Bible is a good translation, it'll capitalize the S for spirit. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Brooding, even. Complicated word. Hovering it. Hugging the world. Bringing forth from it something that wasn't there before. This is one of those aspects 
of where regardless of how one interprets the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, one thing is irredeemably true. God is the source of life. And this is where we get introduced to the chief role of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. So if you're going to take notes, this is the main point. The Holy Spirit and his main role is that of life giver. This has been seen in theology all the way back to the beginning. Not only in Jewish expressions, but in Christian expressions and even in the earliest creed, the Nicene Creed. And the later ones, where we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the life giver. He is the one who actually brings life into this world. And so one of the things that you will see me do is constantly when we're going through the scriptures, we're going to be learning that when we see the Holy Spirit show up, you need to be looking for how are we moving from death to life? You're going to see this everywhere. You're going to see this when he indwells people to decorate the tabernacle. Yes, the Holy Spirit did that. You're going to see it when it comes to Samson in the book of Judges, who's going to be delivering Israel. Look for life. Where is life coming in that it wasn't before? Israel was going to die. Israel was going to be destroyed by the Philistines. And why is it God the Holy Spirit was coming in to do these magnificently bizarre things through someone like Samson, giving him unnatural strength to deliver his people? Because God delivering his people brings life where they cannot achieve it. This is the same reason why God the Holy Spirit is involved in salvation. You can't bring yourself to salvation. We can't even bring ourselves to faith in Christ. We must be regenerated. We must be born again, is how the scriptures put it. Otherwise, we will never see the kingdom of heaven. And the first act of someone born again, what is the first and only work? To believe on him that God has sent. And the Holy Spirit is the one who drives our hearts to this, who raises us from the dead. When we see Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we should see that this has been his work since the very beginning of all revelation. He came in to a world that was not formed, that was not filled with life, and brought forth from it, if you know the next couple of chapters of the book of Genesis, light and life. This is not, did the Father do this? Did the Son do this? Did the Holy Spirit do this? No, God, the Trinity, did all of this. The specific roles of the Father as creator of heavens and earth, and of the Son through whom all things were created, and of the Holy Spirit through whom life and everything comes. This is an expression of God carrying out the creative act completely and thoroughly amongst the three persons of the Trinity. And so far from the day of Pentecost, we're looking at, we're looking at the occurrence of, uh, of not even salvation, but of creation itself. Where does life come from? And it's there in the opening sentences because Moses here, if you never thought about this, the book of Genesis was not, is not just some letter from the extreme ancient world. The book of Genesis was written by Moses while they were wandering around the wilderness so that Israel would know the God who just delivered her. So that Israel would know this is not just one God among many. This is Lord of Lords, God of gods, the one who defeated all the gods in Egypt. Why? Because he made all of those false gods. They were all the fallen angels. Everything that was being carried out. Why is it that when God would do miraculous acts that you would have the magicians in Egypt being able to come up and do something that sort of looked like it? Stolen life, stolen abilities. But God defeated them all. The whole perspective, the whole picture of this is expressing to the people of Israel, who is this God that took you up out of Egypt? Because we know what Israel came up with when Moses was on the mountain receiving the tabernacle, not the tabernacle, the instructions for the tabernacle and the tablets of the law. What did Israel conclude about God that brought them up out of Egypt? That he is to be worshipped in a golden calf. This is the God that took you up out of Egypt. And what did Moses do? He threw the tablets at it, condemned them, ground up the golden calf, put it in water, and had them all drink it. 
and a lot of people got sick. A lot of people died. Why? You cannot direct worship to a false god even if your intentions are good. You must worship God and him alone. And there comes the first commandment, isn't it? There is no other God. You shall have no other God before me. Don't make graven images and bow down to them. Do not treat my name as meaningless. And we see the introduction of these things showing the people of Israel who their God is. Who is this God that took you up out of Egypt? He is the one that not only parted the Red Sea, it shouldn't surprise you that the same wind that split the Red Sea is the same spirit that covered the waters to begin with and brought dry land out of the waters. Remember in creation, that story of, of God bringing the land out of the waters. And all of a sudden, it's not just a water world. Now he tells the waves, you can come this far and no further. Now we have land. We have a place for land animals to, uh, to, to be and for birds of the sky to set their feet. As you continue through, you see that God, once again, in order to destroy the overwhelming sin that was in the world, in Genesis 6, we see the flood of the world returning it back to its lifeless state, killing everything. We're going to go to Genesis 6 next because he expresses specifically that he's going to pull his spirit from the world so that they would not continue to live in this state. So this God who created the heavens and the earth, who brought out of it life that wasn't there before, who brought to it light that wasn't there before, no longer is the deep dark, no longer is there lifeless water, but the waters now teem with life. Why? Because of the word of God that went out and created these things. From the ground comes forth not only animals, from the ground comes forth plants bearing seeds, fruit, vegetables, food, things that sustain life. This is the work of the Spirit. This is why every time we come to the scriptures, they are described as the food on which we eat. They nourish us. Why? Because they're the very words of God. And the people of Israel, as they're wandering around in the desert, were learning this every single day when they went out to collect manna. God expresses to them why he sent them manna. It's so that they would learn that man doesn't live on this alone, but only the things that come from God. Every word that comes from God. They were learning in a physical sense that God sustains their physical life. They were to extrapolate from that, that just as they were incapable of providing for their physical life, they are thoroughly incapable of providing spiritual life. At the fall, we died. Spiritually, we became dead in trespasses and sins. This is where the New Testament still finds us. After thousands of years, the clarity of the gospel comes forth and says, we are still dead in trespasses and sins. But God made us alive. When God regenerates a person and brings them to faith in Christ, it is a creation act, the same as it was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we see the language that's built for the church, we see God filling that person unto salvation, sanctifying that person, that the Holy Spirit's life actually affects their life. It doesn't just make us well-behaved. It actually makes us love good life things. It makes us love the things that God loves. And you'll hear me pray this very often, even when we come to the scriptures, and especially when we come to the scriptures. Teach us not only to understand your word, teach us to love your word. Teach us to love the things that you love. Teach us to hate the things that you hate. Why? Because we want the heart of God in us. We don't want to just improve our lives. We do not want to take our lives and add God to it as long as he can improve what we control. No, we want our lives given to God. We want the Holy Spirit to change us should we need change. 
We want the Holy Spirit to change our desires, not just our actions. Actions can come and go. And this is what Jesus was really getting at when he was at the Sermon on the Mount. It is not just that you haven't committed adultery or you haven't murdered somebody. Lust and hatred have the exact same ramifications, even though they do not extend outside the heart. The subtitle of this entire class is the self-disclosure of the Holy Spirit. Why do I say it that way? It was already stated one of the roles of the Holy Spirit was inspiring of Scripture. When you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it is the Holy Spirit telling you what he did. He inspired Moses to write that. Just as when we go to Job, he inspired that author to write that. And when we go to the Psalms, he inspired the psalmists. When he went to Jeremiah, or when we go to Ezekiel, my goodness, Ezekiel, what an overwhelming treasure trove regarding the Holy Spirit. When we go to these places, we are going to see the Holy Spirit talking to us about himself. And so I call it the self-disclosure of the Holy Spirit because usually we don't think about it that way. Usually we don't think about it that way. But the work of God becomes obvious to the people of God when they start seeing it in his word. And so I want you to see these things. I want you to keep them in mind. Because every time that you see the Holy Spirit brought up, look for life. Is it being given? Is it being removed and taken away? Look for hope. Is it being given? Is it being removed, taken away? And so obviously when we come here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, what's happening? Where is life going? What's happening? We're moving from non-life to life, right? We're here at the creation. We start with a formless and void earth. We end up with... Land, plants, the tree of what? Life. A plentiful garden in which all food we could ever have needed was perfectly supplied in great abundance. In fact, that is the name for that. A plentifulness, an overwhelmingness. It's not just that God prepares a table before us, before our enemies. He prepares a banquet for us in the midst of his presence. That's what the Garden of Eden was all about. That, by the way, my friends, is what the new heavens and new earth is all about. But we chose what instead? Instead, in the fall, we chose not the life that God had for us. Instead, we said, we, we've got this. We can do life on our own. All we need is to know what God knows, good and evil. And we will be able to choose between those, right or wrong. We will be able to handle this. We will be like God. That's what we want. We don't want to live in a manner that is subservient, or let's be honest, just living dependent on God. We want to be self-dependent. We want to be independent. And what did we get? We found out that life independent of God is not a thriving life. It's... It's a life with a death sentence. It's a life that ends. And as far as for life itself, this is not an eternal life where we just go, I'm going to live forever in this physical state and sin can come in, this evil that we cannot hold back, this knowledge of good and evil that causes us not to do good, but instead to do evil. It overwhelmed us. What we thought would give us independent life brought death to us. Where was the work of God? He was bringing life into the world, us, everything, helpers, comparable, names, purposes, roles, plentiful, abundance, fruits, vegetables, no death, and a tree of life to sustain us indefinitely. And one command. Don't choose to subvert me. Do not eat from that tree that makes you think that you will become like me. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's my knowledge. I know what evil is. 
I can know what it is and hold it back. I can know the difference between good and evil, and I can hold that back and not become evil. You can't. Don't do that. And what did Satan say when he came to them? What did the snake say? God knows in the days you eat of it, your eyes will be open. True? True. You will become like God. True? True. God says it the second he shows up, his eyes are open and he has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Those things were true. They became like God in one attribute, the knowledge of what evil was, and it destroyed us. Because the knowledge of evil, we cannot hold. We cannot bear what it is without it affecting us. God can know what it is and deal with that and hold it at bay. We can't. It infects every portion of our lives to the significance that even in the New Testament is described as even as somebody reborn in the Spirit, even as somebody with the Holy Spirit indwelling them, sin is still in our members. We're talking about it like it's in our fingertips and we can't get rid of it. It's just everywhere. So much so is this against what God is doing in our lives when we sin. It's not just that we broke a commandment. It's that sin still sticks to us. You can't wash it off. You can't fix it. You can't overwhelm it. Even as somebody redeemed, even as somebody who loves the law of God, who loves the commands of God and who loves these things, still sin easily entangles us. And it's seen more even in the fellowship of believers than it's seen in our own individual lives. And we must wrestle it. As a great Puritan writer once said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Go to Genesis chapter 6. thousand six hundred excuse me one thousand fifteen no one thousand five hundred years later fifteen hundred years later god shows up into the world remember after the fall god guarded the way not to the garden only he guarded the way to the tree of life lest man should stick out his hand eat from it and live forever god withdrew eternal life from the world that day now the ground will not automatically bring forth things for you you must sweat on your brow and bring it forward it's going to be with great pains that food will come thorns will grow up the ground itself is cursed because of us that's what god said when we work out into the world now this beautiful ground this beautiful earth that brings forth and sprouts forth trees listen when we come to the Garden of Eden, we're not talking about God just put a bunch of seeds in the ground and he says, I promise in a couple of years, this place can be lush and overgrown. No, full-size trees, full-size bushes, fruit on the vines, yet not a single season had passed. God created everything mature. But as he goes out into the world, he says to man, now you're going to do this. You want to be like God. You want to know what the knowledge of good and evil is. You are going to go out into the world and the ground now will bring it forth difficultly for you. Why? It is cursed. I want you to see that for a second because a lot of people think God cursed us in the fall. He didn't. Read it again. He cursed the ground for your sake so that life would now be hard. Why? Punishment? No. Reality, living without God's life-sustaining force. Life will be bent towards death. What did God promise to Adam and Eve? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And while they did not physically die that day because God put something in their stead so that he would make skins, he killed an animal in their place, clothed them, promised that one day the serpent's head would be crushed, but until that day, he is going to be a blight to humanity. And a frustration both ways, trying to bruise the heel of man. Now the animals are set against you. Now the ground is set against you. You can't live in my world trying to usurp me and expect that that's going to work out well for you. That's what God is saying to them in Genesis 3. 
And so mankind goes out into the world, and what happens? The first narrative we get is brother killing brother. What's happening with humanity outside of God's direct rule? Murder. Death. And this will become normative. And as you read the, the accountings of those stories in the primeval world before the flood, you read that somebody, not only do we have someone murdering their brother, and then trying to hide it and say, am I my brother's keeper? I have no idea. And God's saying, his blood is calling to me from the cursed ground. There's life in the ground that shouldn't be there. You killed him. He should still be alive. These things are evil. And we see what evil is doing to us with removal of life-giving expression in the world. The world for 1,500 years diverges and devolves into a world that is stained, not only stained with sin, but defined by sin. The thoughts of man's hearts are only evil continually. We thought we could take the knowledge of good and evil and hold both and sit as neutral arbiters. Is this a good thing? Is this an evil thing? And we found out that the evil didn't just stay in this hand, it infected everything, that we dropped the good entirely. This is how the first six chapters of Genesis work. And it continues through where we find out that the result of attempting to live in this world without God, on our own concept of good and evil, is evil will only be our decisions. We see this before the flood, and you're welcome to ask questions or interact all along. We see this before the flood, that the thoughts of man's heart are only evil continually. So far has this affected creation that not only is man affected by this, not only are the animals affected by this, not only is the ground affected by this, so are the angels. Look at Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God a reference to angels all throughout the Old Testament, saw the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. And the Lord said what? My spirit, again, capital S for a reason. My spirit shall not abide with, in, with man forever. Why? For he is flesh and nothing but. He is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. That doesn't mean that man's lifespan is limited at 120 years. That means I'm going to kill them all in 120 years. One, what an expression of mercy that he provided 120 years to repent. And two, you will deal with the ramifications of life without me. He expresses, we're not going to get into this, but the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. These are... Uh, powerful rulers in the ancient world. And also afterward, when the sons of God came, to the came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so now we have going outside creation order. We dismiss anything that God has said for us and instead pursue things that we make up. This is what happens when we try to imagine that we can choose good and evil without either affecting us. The reality is evil is far too powerful for us. Far too powerful for us. And so what did God say? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and here's where he says it, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Starts out with the knowledge of good and evil, 1,500 years passes, only evil is left. You have a question? Sure, go ahead. Yes. Yes. Okay, this is not a crazy question. Could that be, I've always wondered this, mm -hmm. could that be where the legends of the Greek gods came from? The big guys, you know, the, I don't know. I don't are, you, are you asking me biblically or my opinion? Both. Okay, biblically, we don't know. Right. My opinion, yes. Yes, all throughout... Uh, teachings everywhere throughout all sorts of false religions, you have half God, half man. Okay. Yes. And so I, I, you know, believe in these legends, but it had to come from somewhere. Yes. 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 And again, 
these are the rumblings of the dark spiritual world attempting to subvert the salvation of Christ. Let me explain why. Because it is a really bad version of the incarnation. What the Holy Spirit brought through the Virgin Mary was not some copulation that was outside of nature. No. The Holy Spirit is not that, regardless of what the Mormons claim, because that's exactly what they claim. That's not what happened. What happened was Jesus was created physically in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit because he's the life giver. We'll, we'll get to all that. Um, this is evil man and evil spirits trying to mimic what God's salvation will bring about. And it's why, for instance, you don't see demon possession in the Old Testament. You only see it during the ministry of Christ and in the few years afterwards. They were attempting to do it again, a striving for a physical form to affect things in this world. It's a poor instance. So you don't see demon possession in the Old Testament, do you? You ever realize that that was absent? Right. It comes out in the Gospels. Now, if you read the works of the Pharisees, they had been theorizing why in the world this was happening. It's brand new. God stopped speaking to us with Malachi. They were warning that. And then about 200 years later, all of a sudden, people were coming out demon-possessed. They didn't know what in the world to do. And so they devised all sorts of incantations and herbs and spices, and every once in a while, something worked to exorcise somebody. And Jesus actually refers to them as doing this, but not being successful. That's what makes Jesus' exorcism of demons so remarkable, is that he does it not with spells, not with incantation, just a command. And they are required to obey him. Compulsory obedience. So we'll get into all that. Yeah, but yes, these would be, in my full opinion, the source of almost every one of those stories, things like Hercules, where we have a renowned, powerful man coming from this. This doesn't mean that they were, you know, 20 feet tall. It doesn't mean anything like that, necessarily. But it does mean that this concept that this is a higher order of being, maybe. We even see this in the book of Jude, which says, and compares it to homosexuality, actually. It says, going outside our creation order, going outside our creation domain to do things which ought not to be done. Why does he say it like that? Because God designed a way for life to come. And it's pretty straightforward. Men and women. It's pretty straightforward. What marriage is. It's pretty straightforward, all this stuff. Everything beyond that is only evil continually in its eventuality. Yes, sir? Um, is Goliath a descendant of the Nephilim? So, um, I'm not going to get into the theories of a lot of these things. So, um, he would be a very renowned man, a very exceptional man, and a very unusual man, regardless. There's all sorts of theories that float around about this. I don't like theories, because the scriptures give us so much solid stuff that, focusing on that, I'd, I would not think so. Because the thing is, the scripture does talk about the fact that this happened again after the fall. But it doesn't necessarily tell us when and where. And so... Excuse me, after the flood. You're right, yeah. That it happened after the flood because they were in the world here before the flood and also in the days afterwards. So again, this is, this is Moses writing to the people of Israel in 1445 BC. He's writing about ancient history from their perspective. From their perspective, this is still two, 3,000 years ago. And so he's telling them, look, this happened then and it happened after the flood. In other words, the flood did not fix it. The flood didn't fix it, right? Now, we see instances of this, right? So the, the, the thoughts of man's hearts were only evil continually. Well, then after the flood, what happens? You shall not kill man. You have to give instructions. No murder. The thoughts of man's hearts are evil from his youth. Did it take out the overwhelming death that was in the world? Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't fix the problem that we still have a knowledge of evil. Even among those eight people on that ark. You know, I want you to think about the flood, right? Think about how the Spirit of God is pulled from the world. This is how God describes that back in verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide. The, the real translation is with man forever. Um, in and with are the same prefix in Hebrew. My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. 
That's what he's defined himself as. He doesn't want his spirit revived. He wants to just live for himself. I'll give him 120 years to repent of that. But I'm going to pull my spirit from this world. And so what does that look like? Well, just as God had breathed into the nostrils the breath of life into man, so he will pull it from them by filling his nostrils with water. He's going to pull his spirit from the world and you want to try to live on your own? Fine. I'll return this world back to how I found it and we'll see how good your life works. That's what the flood is. We turn it back to the creation state it was before he created it. Formless and void of life. And so when Noah is looking for a place to go, what is he looking for? He sends out a bird. It comes back. There's nothing. It's formless. It's void. There's no place to rest my feet. Sends it out again. And all of these things, there's all sorts of pictures and the ravens. and don't, We're not going to get into all that. But finally, he finds one that brings back an olive branch. Life is out there again. So he sends out another bird. What happens? The bird doesn't return. Life that sustains it out there is enough. So now we know that the waters are receding and that God is bringing land up from the bottom of the sea once again, fit for a place on which to live. But now we'll have to till the ground with our sweat. And we still have the knowledge of evil. So being flesh, we will die. Something drastic changed about the world. The lifespans of everyone fell down to basically nothing compared to what things were before the flood. And we had to live in a world where the Spirit of God was not striving alongside man for many thousands of years. When the Spirit was pulled, the creation unmade itself. Went back to a formless and void world where there was just death. Just death. Moses connects this with the people of Israel that are wandering around the desert. He says, look, when your ancestors came to Egypt, they recognized that it was I who was doing this, my spirit who was doing this. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I want you to this morning, I want you to turn to Genesis 41. Because it's the next place where Moses reminds them of this. We know the story of Joseph. Genesis 41. <laughs> Were you in Exodus? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. We know the story of Joseph, right? Betrayal by his brothers. Sound familiar? Should. There's all sorts of themes. Sounds a lot like Abel. Should sound familiar. They, they attempted to kill him, but then one of them interceded. He was sold into slavery. Everything looks unsuccessful for Joseph, right? Everything looks like suffering. It looks like God is destroying him. And yet in Genesis chapter 50, we have Joseph's expression. Don't turn there. I'm just referencing it in passing. We have Joseph's expression about his whole story and why this has happened to him. Why did all of this happen to Joseph? His story is 12 chapters long at the end of Genesis. It's, it is a quarter of the book of Genesis. It's just Joseph. And so what has Moses done? He's gone creation, flood, Joseph. And he introduces the spirit working in each of these cases to do something. What do we see about Joseph explaining to his brothers after he shows them who he is and admits to them who he is? He says to them, uh, after they're apologizing for all of this, what you meant for evil... Watch the evil good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. To, to keep many people and to preserve many people unto life, even down to this day. And so, why is it Joseph gets to see dreams? That's not flesh stuff. 
That's not something you and I can just do to make up our minds to be an interpreter of dreams. No, that is a spiritual ability that God must do. And so when Joseph is able to interpret dreams, he's able to do this even before his brothers sell him into slavery. In fact, it was the reason they hated him. Because evil hates good anytime they see it. He interprets dreams. They sell him into slavery. He goes to slavery. He does good there. There's nothing evil said about Joseph. It doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. It means that the narrative is showing us something. What happens to good and to life when it enters this world? Evil hates it and tries to kill it. It's a type and a shadow of Jesus, by the way. All of this to say to us that there is something that the Spirit of God was doing that Pharaoh himself picks up on in, Psalm, excuse me, in Genesis 41. All of these dreams, even when Joseph is in prison, the cupbearer has a dream. That's not so great. And the other prisoner here, the, um, the chief baker, has a dream. Excuse me, the cupbearer has a good dream. There's the baker that has a bad dream. Um, and they're trying to figure out the purposes of these things. And what is it that Joseph brings to them? And you'll keep seeing this dichotomy. Life and death. You, Pharaoh, will raise up your head, he says in the previous chapter, chapter 40. He says to the, baker, uh, to the, to the cupbearer, Pharaoh will raise you back up. And he will reestablish your place. What, a, what, a, uh, um, what accusations against you will be taken away. For the chief baker... Pharaoh will raise up your head, hang it in the trees so that the birds come and eat your flesh. Pretty rough. Life and death. These are the interpretations. And so the cupbearer remembers Joseph after several years of forgetting him. When Pharaoh has a dream and Pharaoh wants to know, is this an omen of death or is this an omen of life? And the cupbearer remembers, oh my goodness, there's a prisoner that can tell the difference between life and death, good and evil. Pharaoh says, go get him. What are, you, what are you doing? Go get him. And so Pharaoh explains to him his dream. Quickly brought him out of the pit. See in verse 14. Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 15, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I have heard that it is you who hear a dream and you can interpret it. What does Joseph do? It's not me. It's not this flesh. It's not this human in front of you. He says the same thing that Daniel says, by the way. We'll get there when we get there. It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly and thin. You guys know this story, I'm sure. Fattened cows, everything's great, everything's awesome, everyone's eating plentifulness. Sound familiar? Yes. Then the thin, lean cows that are starving come up and they eat the other cows. What happens? Good is good until evil shows up and it destroys good. And so what is, what is Pharaoh expressing to him? I need you to tell me. I know this is significant. I know it's spiritual. And man does not have the answer. Joseph said, yeah, and I'm just a man. I don't have the answer. But God does. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are the seven years. The dreams are one, right? It wasn't just cows. It was also the corn. Well, not corn. It was wheat. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up with them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He's going to overwhelm you with life and plentifulness for seven years. And then he is going to pull it. And it's going to be seven years of famine and life without him. The, ground, the ground's curse will be removed for seven years. And then it will be doubled over for the next seven years. It is from this that... The world of Egypt is actually made. And this is what God is expressing to them through Moses, that all of these things that have befallen them is because of what happened with Joseph. I want you to see this. We're getting right to it, and then we're going to be ending here in just a couple minutes. 
And so what Joseph says to him is, in the seven years of plenty, store up in grains, uh, in grain barns, in granaries, and provide for yourself in the midst of evil. In the midst of the seven years of famine, eat from the granaries. They stored up so much wheat that Pharaoh was able to repurchase all of the land of Egypt from his subjects. This is why when we come to the book of Exodus, Pharaoh runs the world. Because with this period of time in the, in the life of Joseph, he purchased back all the lands of Egypt that came into his possession. Pharaoh sees this reality of what Joseph is talking about and says, one, there's no way that man can tell the future. It must be that God tells it. Same thing we're reading in Isaiah chapter 46 today. There's, there's no way that man can see the future, but you tell me the future. That comes from God. And it truly came to pass. And so what does Joseph, uh, what, is, what does Pharaoh learn about this? Look in verse 37. Here's our reference, verses 37 and 38. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find any other man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. All of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Yeah, well, you can take 99% of it, but I want that last bit. Well, what's, what's going to happen with that? You can't do 99% good and 1% evil. What have we learned about evil? It will gobble up the good. And that's what will happen to Pharaoh and that office in the period of the next 400 years as the people go into slavery in Egypt. But what Pharaoh is doing here is recognizing him as possessing the spirit of God. Why? Because here you have provided for us life in a way that we would not know anything but death in eight years should you not tell us about this. Life is going to come and, and so one, one might look at this and go like, how in the world did Pharaoh know that this guy was right? You would know before the end of the first year. God was sending one, two, three, four, five, six, seven full years of unbelievable returns from the ground. Egypt started looking like the Garden of Eden. They had so much grain, so much overflowing that they were able to store up not only for themselves, for the seven years of famine, but the entire Middle East. Four, five, six times as much as they usually would take in on a normal year. They built granaries. They built towers. They built entire places that were just there to store grain for all the years of famine that were to come. The first year of that would be confirmation, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you just keep building more and more and more? Because if this guy's right about the plenty... And if he's then also by extrapolation right about the seven years of famine, how great will that famine be? That famine was so great, it spread from Egypt even into the Levant where J Jacob and his sons were living. And that's why they came down to Egypt to buy grain because there was nothing in all the world. Life without the spirit. This is what God was describing with them, showing them good, evil, showing them life, death, this is what Moses is setting before the people of God. And every single instance of it, he connects with the work of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, life emanates from this world. When the Spirit is pulled back, everything dies. When the Spirit works his work, people's lives are preserved. Because there was no amount of planning that could have promised all of this. It was only at God's direction as the Holy Spirit directing his people directing Joseph, even directing Pharaoh, to preserve the lives of millions of people. And it would end up, 400 years later, as you turn over in the book of Exodus, with that little bit of evil that Pharaoh held on to. I will submit my rule to this God who reveals dreams, except for the throne. I'll give him the whole nation, except the throne. And what do we learn as soon as we turn over to the book of Exodus? That throne has created an evil with that plenty that overwhelms the world, enslaves the people of God, and stands up and worships false gods 
in the place of all of these things. We're going to return to all of that next week. I hope that's a good introduction. It's a pile of information. But anytime you see the Spirit show up, look for life. Anytime you see him leave, look for death. We will be seeing these things throughout scriptures. And we will be coming to the book of Job, as it is the next one chronologically that happens. And then also the book of Exodus next time. So thank you guys. Let's, uh, let's pray as we close. Our Father, we are indeed grateful. We're grateful for your word. It constantly challenges us and clarifies to us what your purpose is in this world. We thank you that you have gifted to us eternal life through your Son, our Lord, the Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have indwelt your people, that they will love you with new hearts that are awake, that are alive, and that cannot be destroyed by evil because it is based on your promise and your word. We thank you for all of these things in your son's name.